law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, give us the wisdom we need, the enlightening of the spirit to hear your word and to be doers of your word. Bless this time as we focus on preaching the gospel and unpacking your scriptures. And I pray for Dale as he preaches today over at Reedville for Todd, that you give him the filling of the spirit to do the same. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. But now, those two words that begin the passage today signal a dramatic change in the letter to the Romans. And Paul has been waiting for this moment since he announced the theme of the letter way back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said there that the gospel reveals God's righteousness for everyone who believes. That's what he's wanted to talk about in this letter. But before he can get there and before we can really celebrate God's righteousness, Paul has to make sure we understand the significance of God's righteousness. In other words, why do people need God's righteousness? And that's what he's been doing in the opening chapters, concluding with chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, now that Paul has made that point, and even more dramatically, now that Jesus Christ has appeared, we can celebrate the revelation of God's righteousness in Christ. This paragraph is kind of the opposite. If someone ever comes to you, maybe at work, they're like, hey, look, you did a good job on that, and you did a good job on this, and you're just waiting for what? The but. But you really need to improve this. This is the opposite. We've gotten the bad news, and now it's time for the good news. And the celebration of that good news, it it just permeates this whole paragraph here in Romans. In fact, many look at this paragraph as a very central paragraph for Romans. Martin Luther called this passage the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. What Paul writes here, he he grabs several threads from the story of the Bible and he just weaves them together into a bow and and he puts that bow on this gift, God's gift for sinful people. So here's what's going to happen in this passage. First, Paul is going to give us a lot of truth. Maybe you noticed that when we read the passage. It's a thick passage, jam-packed with life 
changing truths. And, and they're going to relate to so many areas of the Christian faith, our sin and the Old Testament and even history. He's going to show how the bad news of God's wrath makes the good news of the gospel so good. And he's going to focus on that dramatic change. Maybe if you ever watch history documentaries, maybe one on D-Day or September 11th, it's billed as this is world-changing history, events that shaped the map of the world and the, the policies of the world. Well, this passage is one in which we have world-changing history, and it's jam-packed. But not only is Paul going to say, look at this history, look at what happened, kind of like how we talked last week, he'll also highlight, or at least he'll hint at, how the truth, how the cross, how the work of Christ changes you and me. So there are some deep, rich truths here. But they have practical, life-changing significance. And our aim today is to draw that connection, to make it clear how the beautiful truths of this passage impact you and me. So let's use this time then to answer this question from the text. How does Jesus' work change us? We've got the work, we've got the change. How does the work change us? And let's look at three areas. I think three areas are highlighted by the flow of the passage. First, Christ's work changes how we think. Paul begins in verse 21, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And the main idea here for the whole passage is that phrase, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now, in the last days, God has appeared to fulfill his saving purposes. And the phrase righteousness of God, it gives us two ideas. First, it refers to God's commitment to his promises. Part of God being righteous is that he's faithful to his promises. This is woven throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets. Listen just to Isaiah 46, 13. I am bringing my righteousness near, it is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. You hear how God puts his righteousness beside his salvation and says, I will appear to do those things. God being righteous is God being faithful to his purpose to save. And that's why verse 21 ends with this phrase, to which the law and the prophets testify. This is what the Bible's all about. The storyline of the Bible is how God will save his people. And the appearance of Christ then is a major milestone. It's the accomplishment of all that God has promised. But I want you to notice something interesting also about verse 21. Paul says this righteousness is made known apart from the law. So how does a person come to experience this righteousness? Not through the structure of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament Covenant, which would have been very challenging to Jews of Jesus' day. They would have viewed that as central. The law is eternal. 
Everything God does, he does it through Israel. But Paul is saying that God's purposes are larger than that. God has broken new ground in the history of salvation. And the magnificence of God's grace and God's salvation won't be funneled merely through Israel. Sinners do not have to be first become Jews in order to be Christians. And more significantly, lest that merely sound like a statement about ethnicity, it bears witness to this idea. Your works do not make any contribution to receiving God's salvation. He has brought righteousness to sinners apart from the law and apart from our obedience to the law. So how does that change how we think? Well, it changes how we think about our problems. So our biggest problem, the first problem we need to solve in life, ground zero, is our relationship with God. That is the central storyline of the Bible, how God is acting to save his people from their sins. That's what it's all about. Unless you think, okay, well, that's a problem I have to solve myself. No, God takes the initiative to solve it. Now, when I say that, I'm not making you a false promise. I'm not saying, hey, if you become a Christian, all of your problems will disappear. And nor am I able to sidestep difficult problems, such as problems we might see in the church or in society. What I am saying is all of those things have to be viewed through the lens of the gospel. So how you think about the purpose of life or how you think about issues of race and gender or morality, or your suffering, you will think better about those issues. We will all think better about those issues when we bring the gospel to bear on them. So that's one way we think about our problems. And then secondly, Christ's work also changes how we think about our position. So notice that phrase, the righteousness of God. Again, it has a second meaning. And it is the status that results when God saves us. He's faithful to save, and that faithfulness involves giving us a new status. That's the focus of verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. When you trust the work of Christ, then he gives you a right standing with God. And Paul will explain the logic of this. We say, well, how does that work? I'm a sinner. How do I actually, how can God truly declare me to be righteous or just? Well, Paul will get to the logic of that in the next verses. But he may hint at it right here. Notice that phrase, through faith in Jesus Christ. And a more formal translation of the Greek phrase would read, through faith of Jesus Christ. And some have seen here a reference to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that accomplishes our salvation. God's righteousness is accomplished by the faithfulness of Jesus and given to all who have Faith. Now, don't get me wrong, that's heavily disputed. I, I can't build the whole point on that as attractive as that is, especially as a covenant theologian. I, I can't base too much on that. 
But we have seen this idea in Romans. Remember the beginning of Romans 3 where Paul talked about the unfaithfulness of Israel? It begged the question, where will God find a faithful Israelite? Remember all those Old Testament citations there in chapter 3 about sinfulness from verses 10 to 18? Remember, they all come from passages where God promises, eventually, I will save my people. So in talking about the problem, Paul has been hinting at the solution, and now he can finally reveal the answer. God has found a faithful Israelite. He's found one who can provide salvation and the faithful life and the faithful death of Jesus the Messiah. And that's why you, a sinner, can be declared righteous. Because Christ first lived a righteous life in your place and paid for your unrighteousness on the cross. And when that righteousness is credited to you, when that forgiveness is applied to your account, it will change how you think about your position. You're not just back on neutral territory. Okay, God, wipe the slate clean, new day, I'll do better. Now I can try to earn credit with God. No, you are accepted as righteous in his sight. So let's come now to the second way that Christ's work changes us. And it changes how we view ourselves. Look at the end of verse 22 and into verse 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's a verse I bet many of you have memorized, and I love how simple and clear it is. This verse does not require much explanation at all. It summarizes what Paul argued in the previous section. Every human sins against God, and as a result, we fall short of his glory. And that glory could be his presence. We're not qualified to be in his presence. Or it could be we lost glory when we sin. Whichever way you cut it, because of sin, we fall short of God's glory. And so therefore, Christ's work changes how we view ourselves. In that, we do not view ourselves with superiority. So no matter our heritage, no matter our accomplishments, no matter our views, no matter how far we've come in walking with God, and, and these are good things, these are things we give thanks for, but we all start at the same place, don't we? Guilty before God. In fact, we don't even start at the finish line. We, we start behind the finish line. And we are all arrows that fall far short of the target. That's why one well-known teacher from the Middle Ages, Anselm, he says, if you doubt this, you have not yet considered the weight of sin. But verse 24 changes that. Paul writes, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul refers to our sinfulness again in order to springboard into the solution. Just as everyone is equally sinful, so everyone can be equally justified by the work of Christ. There's no difference. We're equally sinful, and we can be equally justified. And notice some of those key words. First, that great word, justify. It means to declare righteous. That's the language of the courtroom. 
you have, God has already passed the verdict of the last day on those in Christ. They are righteous. Secondly, we're justified freely by his grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. God saves us because he wants to. He's not constrained by anything in us to save us. He is constrained to save us by his will. Because God is love. Because he wants to glorify himself by saving us. People have done and can do nothing to earn God's grace. And that, by the way, this is one of Paul's controlling beliefs. Maybe you know this in your own heart. There's just certain fundamental truths that strongly shape who you are. Or if you discuss ideas with someone, you know, certain ideas will always come out. There are controlling beliefs that we all have. This is one of Paul's controlling beliefs. Salvation is by grace. And it has to be by faith alone. Or it cannot be by grace alone. And lastly, Paul says, this is accomplished through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And redemption simply is freedom from slavery. Freedom that came through the payment of a price. The death of Jesus Christ purchases our redemption, liberates us, gives us freedom. We are all like Barabbas. In the well-known Easter story, we're guilty. We deserve to die. But he goes free, we go free, so that Christ can take our place. And so just as Christ's work means we can't view ourselves with superiority, neither should we view ourselves with condemnation. Our sins have been forgiven. Your debt has been paid. God has declared you to be righteous. And I love the image of Leviticus 26, 13. If you want a verse to memorize this week, memorize Leviticus 26, 13. Listen to its words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke, and here it is, and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Walk with heads held high. Walking out of Egypt with a feeling of confidence. Not pride, not superiority. There's a difference between walking with your head high and your chest poked out. Those are two different things. Paul says, or Leviticus says, the Bible says, when we are freed from the weight of condemnation and know that we are God's people, you can walk with your head held high. Christ's work changes you. And lastly then, it changes our relationships. Now Paul, as he often does, he saved the the biggest, thickest, longest verses for last. But again, I think we can streamline these and, and just look at the main idea. Verse 25 reads, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Think back to a minute to the Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament temple, and all of the furniture there. 
Well, behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place, sat the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid was called the Mercy Seat. Remember, it even had angels on it, symbolizing God looking down on his people. So inside the Ark are the Ten Commandments, the the covenant, which we break. But on the mercy seat, that's where once a year the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of the people so that when God looked down, he would not see his broken law. He would see the blood of the sacrifice. Well, the word in the Greek Old Testament, the word mercy seat, that is the same word Paul uses here that's translated atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the place where atonement is made. He is the place where all that Old Testament symbolism and expectation is fulfilled. And if we ask ourselves, well, why does atonement need to be made? Why these bloody sacrifices? Because of what Paul's already told us in Romans. The wrath of God is revealed against sin. We need a sacrifice to turn away God's wrath. And that, by the way, is why some translations, maybe your translation here reads propitiation. That's another good way to translate that word. Jesus' sacrifice turns away God's wrath, and thus our sins are forgiven. And now I want you to notice, Paul notes something at the end of verse 25, that sacrifice, the necessity of that sacrifice, it tells us something about God's character. It says God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. We we get this idea of God kind of patiently tolerating sin until the sacrifice of Christ. And this is something people often observe. Your children may observe this when they read the Bible story. When Adam and Eve sinned, did they immediately drop dead? No. They didn't collapse on the ground and their souls fall into hell. Now, they did experience spiritual corruption. They were guilty of sin and in danger of hell. Their bodies, their world was cursed. But God did not visit the full measure of his wrath on them immediately. He actually softened his judgment against them. Why? Because he had already purposed to visit his wrath on his son. And so God could endure sin, leave it unpunished, so to speak, for a very long time because Christ had already volunteered to bear God's wrath in our place. And that's why, as verse 26 notes, God did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith In Jesus, God is just. He punishes sin, truly. But God can justify. He can declare sinners righteous. Why? Because Jesus lived and Jesus died in their place. And as we celebrated last week, he was raised again on the third day for their justification. And so here's, friends, here's how that changes 
our relationships. First, it changes our relationship with God. As I've tried to emphasize through this message, if you receive that good news, if you trust the good news, you commit the welfare of your soul to Jesus Christ, then he will forgive you, credit righteousness to you, and you will be right with God by faith alone. And you will have a secure standing, one that is grounded in what Christ has done for you. There's a lot in the passage about faith, but it's attached to what Christ has done. That is what grounds our faith. So even if you feel weak in faith, even if you don't feel secure, the work of Christ is secure. So you trust it. You rest in that. And not only that, I think this passage assures us that we can trust God. Does God punish sin? Yes. Is God just? Yes. Will he punish sin and injustice? Yes. And when we see those things run rampant, that's where we ask those questions. But God has shown us in the cross, he will punish injustice and sin. So here's what that means. You don't have to bear that weight on your shoulders, whether personally in your history or worldwide or looking at issues in the church. And I'm not saying you can't call out injustice. injustice. I'm not saying we shouldn't call out wickedness. I'm just saying ultimately the fixing of that, the avenging of that, that is God. God has said, I will do that. And that frees you up to love your enemies. You can trust God to take care of those things. And furthermore, you can trust God to do right in every area of life. God sent his son. And sometimes people ask, okay, God put his son on the cross. Is that like a form of, of cosmic child abuse? And I think sometimes that question is just being asked honestly. How is that just that God sends his son to die? I think we need to remember when God sends his son to die, that, that's not the same thing as, as if I send my son out into the road. Hey, go out there, throw yourself in front of the car to die uh, for someone else. The persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are equal. They are equal in dignity. They are equal in glory. There is nothing that suggests the Son is of a lower rank than his Father. So it's equal with equal. In the arrangement of salvation. And furthermore, the work of the Son is voluntary. When the Father said, whom shall I send? Christ said, here am I. Send me. And I'm bringing that in. That that point I'm bringing in on purpose to say, look, there's no injustice with God. He always does the right thing. He does the right thing in history. He does the right thing with his children. He will do the right thing with you. And with your life. And that doesn't mean that circumstances won't hurt. It doesn't mean you might not sometimes wonder, okay, what is God doing? Why did he choose to do it this day? And there's a place for lament, but you can trust him. He will always do right. And he's proven it because he's already done the big thing. Sending Christ to you. And that's the second way then in closing that our relationships change. Christ's work changes our relationship with others. If God has been merciful to us, well, how can we fail to be merciful and kind and gracious to others? 
and our lives individually, our worship when we gather, it should just give off this atmosphere of gratitude and humility and a recognition everything we have, we got it from God. And so how does God treat us? Well, that affects how we treat others. And as I said in the introduction to the message, it's obvious now that there's profound theology in this passage. I mean, this is where, this is your go-to passage to explain the significance of the work of Christ. And I wasn't exaggerating when I said these truths have shaped history. The Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation has impacted social structures, work ethics, the whole history of our modern world. Powerful truths in this passage, but not only do they impact history, they can impact you. And if these truths get deep down into your hearts and deep down into your minds, they will change you. So let's give thanks to God for that, and let's pray for God to do that for all of us. Father in heaven, we bow humbly to thank you for the cross of Christ and to stand in awe of you the God who saved us and gives us such salvation as a gift. Again, we would pray, forgive us our sins, have mercy upon us, and thank you for Jesus Christ and his grace. And by your grace, by your truth, by your word, by your spirit, sanctify us. Change our lives, how we think, how we act. Bring them more into line with Jesus. And give us a great joy there a sobriety, a humility, a gratitude, and shape our lives in this church by your grace. And thank you for your many mercies, the people of God, and your mercies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.